You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Thank you, Tara. Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Some new faces. That's always a treat. And good morning at home. We appreciate Worship for All, worshiping with us live there, uh, live here and at home through live stream. So we are continuing our journey in the Gospel of Luke, but we're doing something different. We're going to take a three-week break in our continuity to do a mini-series, and I think the title says it all, Who's Your One? And so a couple of months ago, we were thinking about as elders, praying about as elders, how do we prepare ourselves for Easter? And Easter, of course, is just that monumental event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so we thought to take the Gospel of Luke and take a break and look at three passages that really highlight this idea of who's your one. Now, we've been in Luke quite some time, and I think you realize that Jesus was very interested in one. I love Luke 19. It's one of my favorite passages. Jesus comes to Jericho, and there's a criminal, someone who was despised and hated by his people. His name is Zacchaeus. He's known as a chief tax collector. What does Jesus do? He breaks all social norms and says, Zacchaeus, today I must stay at your house. He was interested in one. I think the capstone of this idea of Jesus being interested in one is found in Luke 15. You're probably familiar. It's one parable with three stories uh, within it. A gal, a housewife, loses a coin. A precious priest of jewelry. What does she do? She relentlessly searches for that piece of jewelry until she finds the treasure. And then... To accompany that in Luke 15, there's a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep in the fold to pursue one lost sheep until he finds it. And then, of course, the beautiful picture, a father running to his renegade son, embracing him, kissing him, expressing favor towards him. Let's throw a party. Why? My one lost son is now found. My one lost son who was dead is now alive. That's the essence of this series that we're going to look at in Luke. Now, to prepare you, uh, we have one of our own who's going to share his story, who was his one. So let's take a look. Connor Elmet, I think you're in for a treat. My name is Connor Elmet. Uh, I've been attending Westwind with my wife, Becky, uh, for the last six years. We're on our seventh year now, and I'm a proud member of the Sheldahl Connection Group. When I look back on my own testimony, I was really fortunate to grow up in a Christian home. I have two incredible parents that uh, love me dearly and an, and an awesome family. And so I grew up going to missions trips, church camps, church every Sunday, youth groups, all of that. Uh, at the same time, though, it was never a really personal thing. Uh, Jesus was more of an accessory as opposed to a focal point of of who I was. And it uh, became evident in in my interactions with others. Uh, Christianity was used as something to accomplish things that were not very Christ-like at all. And it was something that was quite a shaky foundation. And when I got to college, 
Uh, without that support system, without the security of, of who I was, my friend group, uh, the activities I was involved in, uh, it really started to, to crumble quite quickly. And it was easy to all of a sudden give in to things that I, I knew were wrong. And it was very evidential that it wasn't quite real to me. Uh, it was something, again, that I, I did and knew the answers to, but it wasn't a, a personal uh, experiential relationship with, with Jesus. As I started to find my way a little bit more throughout uh, undergrad, uh, I had, again, awesome people that, that helped to, to pull me back into uh, small groups, Sunday services, um, really plugging in, but it still was, uh, it wasn't quite there yet. And again, uh, further after undergrad and into dental school, it was again something that started to slip uh, as I lost the familiarity of the surroundings uh, that I had become quite accustomed to. At this time, I was really fortunate though to, to reconnect with a, a friend that I had grown up quite close to and who is now my wife. And in our, our dating process, uh, she really became my one as far as uh, pulling me back in. She's my one in many ways, but especially uh, as far as uh, pulling me into to who Jesus was. And I remember after one night uh, of you know, some poor choices on, on my end, getting a, a chance to, to spend time with her the next day. And we took a long walk and she had you know, told me quite clearly that she would follow me uh, wherever I was going as long as that was towards Jesus. And that really gripped me in a sense where this isn't something that's just you know, going through the motions and that if I cared deeply enough about her and, uh, and the direction of, of our relationship, then it was something that was gonna require uh, more out of me. And so I had the opportunity to connect with uh, the pastor in Iowa City at that time. And I remember him telling me that my wife was somebody that would make me step my game up. And I, I, looking back on that, I fully see uh, how God was working uh, in both of us, but especially in my wife as well, to, uh, to point me towards uh, the Savior uh, that I, I love so dearly now. Amen. How inspiring. So what a beautiful picture of what it means to be one to someone else. And you think about the ripple effect that Connor's life is having now. Through Becky to Connor, and boy, uh, his profession is just his life. And John, where are you? Did you set that guy up for the Sheldon Life Group? I need a little bit of air time for the Missile Life Group. We'll, we'll figure that out in the weeks to come. But no doubt the uh, Life Group's a very fruitful ministry. So I want to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles, uh, Luke 5, uh, verses 17 to 26. Now, some of you who might like to mark up your Bible says, boy, we've been here before. We have been here before. But the topic uh, many months ago was focused more on Jesus. And we looked more from a divine vantage point at this passage, standing in awe of God because of his powerful work. So that message is done, you know, reconnect with it if you missed it. Today we're going to look a little bit more horizontally. We're going to examine this passage from the vantage point of the lame man and his friends. And think about this beautiful concept, who's your one? So I would love for you to stand with me as we read God's Word. If you're at home, you're comfortable doing that, you know, get out of that lazy boy. I remember uh, sinking too comfortably into the lazy boy with my java. So let's stand in reverence to God's word and follow along. Luke 5, 17 through 26. 
On one of those days while Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and notice this, and also Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in Jesus. And so this is the popularity stage of our Savior, coming from all around Israel to uh, be ministered to by Christ. Just then, some men came, carrying on a mat, a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in, set him down before him. Since they could not find any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on a mat through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, pick up your mats, and go home. Can you imagine what that must have been like, not only for the man or his friends, but those who were present immediately. He got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, went home, and I love this, glorifying God. That was our focus in the last talk. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Please be seated. And I hope that will be true of each and every one of us today. As we review this passage where people stood in awe of the Lord because of the great power that was exhibited, divine power of God to heal a man, paralyzed, lame, that we uh, won't take this for granted, that we will be inspired uh, similarly to glorify our great God and Savior. As always, I encourage you to take notes. So we have a Connect card here uh, live. You can grab that and fill in the blessing. At home, we encourage you to download the digital guide. Hopefully, you've done that. So let's start with the blessing. The blessing is this. The virtues of the lame man's friends should motivate us to prioritize the who's your one initiative. And again, we're going to be four weeks in this, three sermons, but a, a month-long journey leading up to, to Easter. Who's your one? And we're praying today that God will inspire us to just think about that one, to open our lives to engaging one individual for the kingdom and glory of God. So this morning, I want to share with you four virtues. Uh, it's just a beautiful picture. And so virtue number one, friends care. Friends care. And so Luke 5, 18, just then some men came, carrying on a mat a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him before Jesus. Now, we have to go back uh, 2,000 years to the first century and try to put yourself in this man's shoes. In an agrarian society, to be paralyzed was a death sentence. 
In other words, basically as a male, a provider for your family, you couldn't work. You couldn't farm. It's an agrarian society. And in a culture of honor and shame, what does it look like? You're dishonorable because you can't provide for your family, and you're living in shame. A man's identity is often built around their occupation, their employment, uh, their ability to provide for family, loved ones, friends. In the ancient world, it was for the extended family, parents, grandparents, and so forth. Here, this man was relegated to lifelessness, and what we know about the ancient world, it was to begging. Instead of being a provider, he had to beg to be provided for. And what's beautiful about uh, this passage is his friends knew his dilemma. He knew, they knew his heartache, they knew his pain, and they came to the rescue. They cared, and that's what friends do. And when we think about who's your one, it starts with compassion, folks. Here's one of the beautiful things that I discovered this past week. Twelve times in the gospel, there is a phrase that's listed that is said only about Jesus and his heavenly Father. And the phrase is this. I'm going to put it on the screen. To be moved with compassion. That was true of Jesus. That's why people flocked to him. He was a man of compassion. He cared deeply for people as his heavenly Father did. And so here's these friends, just like Jesus, moved with compassion. They saw his brokenness, they saw his hurt, they saw his need, and they engaged. What a blessing. One of my favorite passages about the compassion of Christ is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. If you can flip in your Bible, hold your finger in Luke, I really want you to see this. Matthew 9 is a strategic passage because it's a hinge passage in Luke, or in Matthew. It's a summary passage, of you, if you will. So track with me here. This summary passage, Matthew says, Then Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Notice, when he saw the crowds... He felt compassion for them. And here's the reason why. Because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. One of the prayers that I constantly have for myself, for my wife, really for us at Westwind, is that God would give us eyes of compassion. Folks, I want you to know something. Just generally speaking, I'm a pretty selfish guy. And I can just walk through the day being so self-centered. My needs, the pyramid of selfishness. I, me, mine, myself. And if God doesn't break our hearts and give us hearts of compassion, we're not going to see that people are hurting, that people are broken, that they are weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. We've gone through the shepherd motif some time ago. It's not a good thing to be a sheep without a shepherd. You know what the remedy here is? Jesus says, pray. Pray that God will send out compassionate workers into his field. And so what I thought to do this morning is just pause for a little bit. 
We're going to ask you today to identify your one. But it begins with prayer. Father, break my heart. Help me to have eyes of compassion like you. And to pray to become the worker, the one who's going to engage the weary and worn out people in our society and culture. So can we take a moment and pray together? Let's bow our heads. And at home, please join me. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And we confess, yes, Lord, the pyramid of self-centeredness, I, me, my, myself, just, just really works against being people of compassion. So I pray you would give us eyes of compassion like Jesus. And as we see the needs, Lord, we see the brokenness, the weariness, the worn outness, oh, we will engage. Lord, today, would you please help us to identify our one in Jesus' name, amen. Secondly, virtue number two, and I love this. This is the fun part of the passage. Friends persevere. Friends persevere. Look at verse 19. This is just cool. I love sometimes how the, the Bible stories just kind of unfold. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on the mat through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Now try to picture yourself 2,000 years ago. Basically, people lived in communities. You had a small house, two, three rooms max. Rooftops were used in the ancient world for growing crops, for relaxation, sometimes meeting and meals. You have a little bit of a compound, so people are flocking to Jesus, remember? Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, there's a lot of people there. You can't get in, right? It's just full. So what do they do? They get creative. The ancient world, they would put, and even today, you can go and see it, they would put stairs on the side of the home. You could walk up the stairs to the roof. The Old Testament has a law that you had to put a parapet around the roof. Why? Because people were up there, kids, adults, and so forth. You had a little wall so you wouldn't fall off. And again, they did a lot of normal things like farming, like eating, like socializing on the roof. I lived in Israel many years ago. For four months, we spent time on the roof. So here's these guys. They can't get into the normal way, the front door, the side door. What do they do? They go up the staircase, uh, get on top of the roof, and dig a hole. Now, if you were the homeowner, how would you feel right now? That's questionable, right? It's questionable. But don't you love their creativity? Don't you love their perseverance? Those are the kind of friends, I tell you, I want to run with. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs says. I get a sense that's what's going on here. What a beautiful picture. Now, you know what? <clears throat> I really get a sense that these guys had a choice to make. Just imagine you're bringing your lame man, your lame friend in on a mat, whatever, a cot, something like that, and you see the masses. You know what they could have done? Rationally, they could have said, oh, my goodness, too many barriers we get a pass. This ain't a good day to see Jesus. Maybe we'll come back tomorrow. Maybe next week. Who knows? You know what? Forget about all the excuses. Forget about the barriers. We're going to get creative. We're going to be relentless. Why? We have a heart of compassion for our friend. We want our friend to meet Jesus. And so they go up to the rooftop they dig a hole. I don't know. If you were the lame guy, can you imagine what, it, what that would have been like? Hey, guys, please don't drop me. I mean, this is, this is awkward already. 
and now I'm being lowered down. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of barriers. And as I thought about it, what's true then is also true now. Would you agree with me there's a lot of barriers in 21st century America to identifying one and sharing the love and gospel of Jesus Christ? There's a lot of barriers, folks, and I want to spend a few moments on that. If you are taking notes, I would encourage you. You might want to write some of these things down. But the first barrier that I identified was the fear of rejection. And we all fear that, right? Why? Because we care for people. We love our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, right? There's two things you don't talk about with people today. What are they? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because we don't want to create tension in the relationship. We want to have a good relationship in the community with our neighbors. We want to look, be looked on favorably with people, our co-workers, our family, and so forth. So you bring up religion, guess what? tension gets heightened. Can I encourage you for two things? One, I try not to talk about religion. I try to keep the focus on Jesus because he's a person. He's God. He's a friend and a savior. We talk a lot about relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so trying to put aside that religious stuff and what has Jesus done in your life to transform you? One of the other things is we need what they needed in the book of Acts, the early church, and all throughout church history. We need boldness. Let me read to you Acts 4.29. This is a prayer of the early church. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message, what? With complete boldness. They were being threatened. They were being flogged. They were being thrown in prison. They were being persecuted, and some were being martyred. Stephen, Peter, Paul... (laughs) I mean, if, if there was a difficulty in sharing Christ, it had nothing to do with religion and politics. It could cost you your life then. And so we lean in and we say, Lord, give us boldness. Help us, help us to really embrace this idea that, yeah, it might cost us a relationship, but because we love people, we're going to share the good news. The second thing is, Fear of not knowing what to say. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever just thought, man, I don't know if I can answer that question. Fear of what to say. A few of you are honest, just, just Tyler? Okay, well, there's one. Anyone else? Okay, a few more honest people. I'm in that camp, folks. There are tough questions. Why? People wonder about God. Who is Jesus? What about pain and suffering? Can you trust a Bible that's so old? It's written by a lot of different people over a period of a thousand years. They have real questions that demand real answers. Please hear me. Therefore, you know what my God-given job description is? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4.11. To equip God's people for ministry, to train people. Why? So as Peter says, First Peter, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The Greek word there for answer is apologia. It's apologetic. To give a defense, as Paul said in Philippians 1, a defense of your faith. These things are true, and here's why. Because Jesus was real. He taught, he lived, he healed, he died, he was buried, he rose from the grave. That's what it means to give an apologia. 
And folks, the facts are on our side. But sometimes we haven't been trained. Sometimes we haven't been equipped. Sometimes we don't have answers because we haven't gone a little bit deeper in our faith journey to be prepared to give an answer. So one of the things we're doing this month is we're going to equip you. We hope you'll say yes to being trained. And it's not rocket science. It was our intention to keep this really, really simple. But being comfortable with writing out your testimony and sharing it contextually, learning how to share the gospel and articulate it to help people move from here to there and put their faith and trust in Christ, to pray intentionally, to identify individuals whose God's put in your life, your own sphere of influence. Those are all intentional things that we're about in this Who's Your One series. And so we encourage you, lean in. Let's grow together. Let's be equipped. There's some great resources out there to give an answer for the hope you have. Third, life's complexities. Would you agree with me life is complex? And so some of you might be thinking right now, okay, thanks, Keith. Life has been hard this past year, and you're asking me to add one more thing to my agenda? Can I lovingly say this? No, I'm not. What I'm hoping maybe to do is get us refocused on truly who we are in Christ. Westman Church has a mission statement. Anybody want to quote it for me? It's not up on the screen this week. Come on, elders. We exist. Go ahead, Tyler. He's looking at his notes. Yes, 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 yes. All right. Give it up for Tyler. Come on. Who cares if he cheats? Just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I surrender too. We're good, right? We're good? No vain imaginations? All right. We exist to glorify God by engaging people everywhere in the journey of Christ-likeness. Folks, that's our hope here, just to live out our mission. It's Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. That's a promise. That's not a command. Some people look at it as a command. It's a promise. You're going to be this because that's who we are. So my hope is this. It's maybe more of a refocusing, right? Sometimes we get distracted. Count me in. I get distracted. And so we get refocused on first things, being People of the gospel, sharing the good news. And so, <clears throat> then finally, barrier number four, kind of an inward focus versus an outward focus. And I don't want to pick on anybody here. I look in the mirror first. I really do when I preach. And so sometimes what happens is it's just so comfortable to be in the holy huddle. You've heard that phrase before, right? I had a pastor many years ago, actually, my first pastor, he said this, Keith, when the church stops looking outward, it will begin looking inward. And when the church begins in looking inward, guess what it's going to see? A lot of blemishes. I got some. We all have some. Would you agree? And so the goal of, boy, reaching out, getting our focus on your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal of who's your one initiative. Let's keep trucking here. Virtue three, friends believe. Love this. Look at verse 20. See in their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, we've talked about this in the past. The object of your faith really matters, right? It's just not believing, hey, I believe, I'm a man of faith. Okay, great. Guess what? If you got faith as a mustard seed, great things are going to happen. Why? The object of your faith is huge. It's Jesus. And so when people put faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, lives got transformed. Here's what Jesus says to this guy. He's lame. Your faith has made you whole. To him and his friends, way to go, guys. They put their faith and trust in Jesus. Luke is relentless on this theme, the object of your faith. You might remember in Luke 7, there was a centurion. His servant was was really sick. And, and Jesus was going to come and serve. He says, wait, 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 Jesus, here. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus said about him, I haven't seen this great faith in all of Israel. This is a Roman centurion. Just say the word, Jesus. You don't even have to come to my house. And then Jesus headed into Jericho, Luke 18. There's a blind man begging. And I can kind of picture this. When you travel the world, you see this quite often. There's a blind man begging. Jesus says, how can I help you? He says, <laughs> it should be rhetorical. Lord, I'd like to have my sight back. And here's what Jesus says. Your faith, and I love this, has saved you. He got his sight back, but he got so much more. Your faith has saved you. Why? Because the object of our faith is the key. Faith is a mustard seed. goes a long, long way, according to to scripture. We're pretty familiar. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is. He rewards those who diligently seek him. And so here's the question. Will you believe right now for one person over the next month that God will give a divine appointment, that as you pray, there's going to be open doors, that you can, yes, get trained and, and be ready to give an answer to be thoughtful about the gospel presentation. We're going to provide a cool resource toward the end of the series, um, the three circles presentation, how to share the gospel, real creative, real contemporary, in 12 minutes. And it's compelling. It's well done. And it'll help people to think about what it means to know God through Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and put their faith in Christ. Now, finally, friends, celebrate and I'm not going to camp here. Why? Because the previous sermon was all on this. Standing in awe of God, look at verses 25 through 26. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, went home, glorified God. Then everyone, remember, there's a lot of people. They couldn't get into the house. They had to go up to the roof. It says, then everyone, and I would say collectively, everyone who was there hearing Jesus' teaching was astonished. They were given glory to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. If you were there, could you imagine what it would be like to see this guy <laughs> come through a roof that was busted up? He's dangling. And the first thing Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Oh, no. I mean, it got tense. Blasphemer. A blasphemer could get stoned in the ancient world. And so right out of the gate, Jesus is picking a fight. <laughs> well, if you think that's hard, how about this? Get up and walk, go home. He does. 
everybody is standing in awe of God. Why? It's Ecclesiastes 3.14, probably one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. I know that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. You know what I hope and pray for each and every one of us, including Ellen and I? That we're going to stand in awe of God in the next month because we're going to see him work. We're going to see him give divine appointments. We're going to see him crack doors open for spiritual conversations. We're going to see people who have difficult, challenging questions, and we're going to fulfill 1 Peter 3.15, being able to give an answer, an apologia for the hope we have. We're going to do it reverently. We're going to do it meekly. We're going to see people who have maybe never been comfortable sharing the gospel be trained to share the gospel using the three-circle method or others. And yes, some people will cross the line of faith, come to genuine faith, get baptized, and we get to stand in awe of God. You looking forward to that? That's my prayer for every one of us who call Westwind home. Let's join the journey. And I want to share a final story. Hopefully that will inspire you. Let me introduce you this morning to a gentleman. His name is Sunkalo. I met Sunkalo about 15 years ago. He made me mad. We walked into the village of Sunja in Mali, and he heckled us. He ridiculed us, and he's big, and he's tough. So, all right. So as the couple weeks we were there went on, we began praying specifically for Sunkalo. Guess what happens? God works in his heart. We engage spiritual conversation. He crosses the line of faith and gets baptized. One of the first believers to get baptized in Sunja. This is the bush in Mali, 99% Muslim. Guess what happens next trip? We come back to Mali. Sunkalo changes his name, asks his family, he had to ask his family, to Paul. So I'm like, that's a good thing. It's better than Keith. So now we got a Paul in the village of Sunja. Here's what Paul said to me. Paul says, Keith, I got a friend in Belengua. His name is Esau. He fell on hard times. Can we go visit? Of course we can go visit. And Paul, you're going to be sharing. So we go to Belengua, which is quite a hike, and there's a gentleman named Esau. Esau, as a child, lost one of his legs. He fell in a shaynut pit, got infected. They had to amputate. Just recently, prior to his picture, he was in the hospital. He had his other leg amputated. Think about the care of Paul for his friend Esau. In an agrarian society, Esau was relegated to begging. He couldn't provide for his wife, Hawa, for his family, and it wasn't good. Dignity, culture of honor and shame, very similar to the ancient world. But guess what? Esau comes to genuine faith in Christ and gets baptized. And he's catalytic in the village of Blangwa. Then what did God do? We had a mission compound in Sunja, a mission compound in Blangwa, and Paul is still catalytic. Then let me show you another picture. Here's one of my favorite pictures. It's a picture of a village, Banagabugu. Can you say that? Banagabugu, this is a real name. Oh, yeah. Because once you get Banagabugu down, you're good. You're, you're accepted, all right? Chief Lamine comes to genuine faith in Christ and the elders of their, their village. We have an open door for the gospel. I'll never forget baptizing Chief Lamine and the elders. Why? Paul's in that picture. Do you see him? <laughs> he becomes the catalyst. He's reaching one. 
And then let me show you some of my favorite photos. The first baptisms. We had to go down to the river, kind of nasty. Looked like chocolate milk. We're going in there? Yeah. Without mass? Probably. But we baptized. Let me show you the, the climax of that day. Close to two dozen adults came to genuine faith in Christ. And Paul was catalytic. God used one to reach one. The kingdom of God came. Folks, this is in Mali, 99% Islam, Muslim. If it can happen there, it can happen here. One final story. His name is Brahma, our first pastor. Two men said yes to Bible school who came out of Islam to genuine faith in Christ, went to Bible school, man of Bible school. He is now pastoring in the village in Mali. Let's stand in awe of God. Let's worship him.